Good morning. We are thankful each one who's here with us this morning as we're continuing our lessons through the book of Isaiah. And we're looking at this morning Isaiah chapter 59. We'll also be looking at uh, Isaiah 62 as well as we'll be looking at this idea of sin, forgiveness, and drawing near to God. Isaiah 59 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. That may sound odd, but because of the material there, we'll see why, I think you'll see why that is, because there's so much really uh, encouragement in the reminders concerning sin. And we think about this idea of sin, forgiveness, and really what it means to draw near to God. Well, you can't draw near to God with sin, can you? You can't draw near to God without forgiveness to remove that sin. And so we see those things really being discussed and going hand in hand. And so this morning, I want to show what we can learn about these three things, sin, forgiveness, and drawing near to God, as we find it here in Isaiah 59 and also in chapter 62. And we begin first by looking at the 59th chapter, looking at what's called the wall of separation, which is sin, as you have there on the screen. It's described in Isaiah chapter 59. And I've said this before, but I've had different people, and I'm sure some of you have had the same conversation with others as well, that have said something to the effect that I just don't feel like God is listening to me, or that God is not responding to my prayers. You know, one of the hindrances to our prayers is sin. Sometimes it's our attitude about our, what we're praying to God about. Maybe we're praying to God also for the wrong reason. But sin is a hindrance to our prayer. And we look at Isaiah 59 as we begin here, looking at verses 1 through 3, as Brother Paul just read a moment ago. Here the, here the Bible says here, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. And this is beginning a section which, as you see it on the screen, entitled Jehovah's Charge Against the People. And it is, is that they are separated from him. He says, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. And you think about what he's talking about there in verse 1. What he's saying there is that anytime you feel like the Lord is unable to save you or unable to help you, it's not him. It's not his hand that is shortened. It's not his ear that is hard of hearing. The problem is with man. You notice there he says, the Lord's hand is not shortened. That is, it's not that he cannot save. It's not that the Lord does not have the ability to save mankind. The problem is mankind, many times, behaves because of sin in a way that shows they don't want to be saved. He says, nor is nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So we ever find ourselves in a situation where we feel like God is not helping us, God is not answering our prayers, we have to realize, first of all, it's not God. It's sin that causes problems with mankind. Sin is is the common problem throughout history. Whether you're looking back in time of Adam and Eve near creation. If you move all the way up throughout history of all the things we see happen in the Bible through secular history, and yes, to today and beyond, sin is still the determining factor. He says there in verse 2, But your iniquities, which is another reference to sin, 
have separated you from your God. That is something we have to bore into our minds, is that sin is what separates us from God. And yes, it comes in many different coverings. It comes in the covering of man-made traditions that we have followed for years that we're not willing to give up. That, too, is sin. It comes in the form of rebellion and arrogance and pride and stiff-neckedness, as the Bible talks about there, the reference to being arrogant. And the list goes on and on, but he says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And now notice, And your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. What has done it? Sin has done it. That is the problem. Sin is what's causing these things to take place. And he goes on to say in verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood, a reference to sin. Everybody out there seems to be like violence, sin, perhaps even murder, but violence, sin, here in verse 3. And your fingers with iniquity, again, sin. Your lips have spoken lies, sin. Your tongue has muttered perversity, sin. It's the same thing, isn't it? All different descriptions used, but all referencing the same thing, sin. Sin is what is the problem. Sin is that wall of separation as you find there in verses 1 through 3. And so since we know, as the Bible reveals here very clearly, what is separating us from God, it brings us to the next point is what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Looking at verse 4, we're going to get to that more here in just a few moments about what do we do about this. But looking at verse 4, he goes on to say here, No one calls for justice nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. I'm convinced we can find all times of references to sin and, and during the times of the Old Testament, the times of the Christ, and times of prophets, where we can say, you know what? We see the same thing today. We look at verse 4, we see the same thing today. And we'll go narrow down to just the spiritual side of it. The people today always like to hear the truth that comes from God's Word. No, they do not. Nothing has changed all that much. It's sin under different various names, but it's still sin. The actions may be those which we never concede man would do, but it's still sin. He says here in verse 4, No one calls for justice. Nor does he want to plead for truth, which means no one wants anything to do with what is actually good and right. Righteousness is rarely popular, is it? They trust, he says, in empty words and speak lies. What do you think it means to trust in empty words? Do people sometimes <laughs> to trust in people and they're, what they're saying and when they really shouldn't put their trust in them? An empty word. This means that sounds good, but there's nothing really behind it. You know, I like Cadbury eggs. I know that's a big surprise. But what would happen if you open up that foil and there was actually nothing inside of it? That's how I think about these words here. They sound good, but when you peel it back, there's really nothing there. There's nothing there. Empty words. They speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. Again, which is another word for sin, right? They're only doing what? They want nothing to do with truth, which is why they're separated from God. 
It's not that the Lord cannot save them. You go back to verse 1. It's not that the Lord cannot hear. The problem is with man. The problem is with man. Looking now at verse 5 and 6. They do nothing that brings good. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He, he who eats their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. That sounds a little odd, right? What he's talking about there is the idea they do, they do nothing that's good. Their plans are evil. The, the spotter's web is really a reference to the idea of weaving lies and deceits. They hash out things that bring out violence. You won't mess around with a viper or a viper's eggs? Well, no, you're going to get hurt. Verse 6, their, web, their webs will not become garments, which means their lies cannot stand up to the truth, right? Nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works, their works are works of iniquity, and the, act, and the act of violence is in their hands. Nothing good is being done. And he describes their actions like those who are trying to hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He eats other viper, other eggs, dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper. Nothing good comes from them. Either way you look at it, he says in verse 5, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Looking at verse 7 and 8, we find these only do evil and do not know the way of peace. He says their, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. That's not an uncommon phrase or idea we find in the Bible. Their, their feet running to evil. Proverbs says they have feet that are swift to do evil. The same idea is, which is they don't hesitate. They have no problem doing wrong. You want to do something? Well, sure, it's wrong, but who cares? Just go do it. Quickly, they do it. Their thoughts, he says, are thoughts of iniquity or thoughts of sin. Wasting and destruction are in their past. The way of, of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Whoever takes that way. How many times do you find in the Bible where pathways are used to describe how a person is living in the way they have chosen to live? If there is a pathway that is crooked, does that mean there's also probably a pathway that's not crooked? Matthew 7 mentions one, doesn't it? The straight and narrow path, Matthew 7, 13 to 14. And here we find this again, pathways being used. They, they make themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Shall not know peace. And we can look at that in the sense that they'll not know peace because their sins will never be blotted out because they're going down a path of wickedness and sin. They'll never know peace because they'll never know true and lasting contentment. They'll never know happiness. And the list goes on and on. You can boil it down and say they'll know nothing good ever if they're walking down a way of wickedness. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. It's not a question or a possibility. It's out of their realm of possibilities. Though they'll ever know peace. There in verse 8. We look at verse 9. We find now a confession, really, of wickedness. As you look at Isaiah chapter 59, beginning here in verse 9. We find that as a result of their wicked acts, we find here in verses 9 through 11, they are acting as if they are blind. Their justice, he says, therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. Why? Because they're still in sin. You can walk around in a room that you know by heart, but if it's completely dark, 
It doesn't mean just because you know it that you're going to be able to see every single thing that's there, right? You ever walk out to your living room in the middle of the night or early morning and you forget someone moved a chair to a certain location or someone moved a footstool to a certain location and you hit it because the light is not on? You think you know the path, really you don't because the light's not on. We find there in verse 8, in verse, uh, verses 9 and 10 there, that, that same idea. They walk around groping because the light is not on. Why? Because they're still in sin. It says we grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We know what that means, right? You walk into your room at night, you grope around, you look for that, for that light switch, right? They're groping around looking for the light, and they can't find it because they're still in sin. We grope as if we have as if we have had no eyes, which means they have the ability to see, but they're acting like they can't because they're in sin. There are completely pictures being blind here because of sin. And keep in mind, all this is because they have chosen to do these things. Their lifestyle has made them in this position, put them in this position. It was their choice, their actions, their fault that they are in this situation because of sin. Because we know there are a lot of people they like to point fingers and blame others. Well, if so-and-so would have done this, or if mommy and daddy would have done this, no, that time is over. If you choose to do wrong, it is because you, yourself, have chosen to do wrong. If you decide you're going to stay in it, it is your own fault. And looking at verses 9 and following, they have chosen to stay in it. We find here their condition while they're in sin is like they're walking in the darkness. They can't find their way out because they're still in sin that they have chosen. That they have chosen. He goes on to say in verse 10, We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at, at noonday as, it, as at twilight. We are, we are as dead men in desolate places. As noonday, at noonday as, as at twilight, which means it's like... Daylight and dark doesn't matter to them because they're just in sin. It's all darkness to them. He says, we all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Like the blind, because their wicked deeds, salvation is beyond their reach. He says, we all growl like bears. Why? Because they're getting uncomfortable. If a bear is growling, sometimes because it's on the hunt, sometimes because it's aggravated, sometimes because it's hungry, you want to be far away as you possibly can. The growling of a bear is never a good thing. They're growling because why? They are in danger. They can't find their way out. Frustration is coming out. They moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Why is justice and salvation far from them? Keep in mind, verse 1 hasn't changed. It's not that the Lord cannot save them. It's not that the Lord does not hear. It's because they have not yet changed. Until they repent and are forgiven their sins by God, this situation will continue on and on and on until they change. You think about this for a moment. If people today want truth or want the sinner to change because they themselves do not want to change you know with the bible that doesn't work you can find all the little different translations out there that change different words 
to say different things so it sounds a little more pleasant, a little bit softer. But it doesn't change what God said. And we find here in verses 9 through 11, they're described because of their sinfulness, as if they're walking around in the dark, not knowing where they're, where they're going, and that justice and salvation is far from them. We continue reading in verse 12 and 13, we find they finally admit their wicked deeds. For our transgressions are multitude before you, the you is a reference to God, and our sins testify against us, which means our sins bear out you know, what we've been doing, our actions, you can't hide them. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. What do they just do? They just acknowledge their sins. We know them. They know what they have been doing is wrong. They know their sin, and they have, they are, as he says in verse 12, we, we, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and our iniquities, and as for our iniquities, we know them. They are aware of what they have been doing, and now it's time to do something about it. And transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving, uttering from the heart words of falsehood. They know what they've been doing. They know what they've been doing. You know, there's nothing more discouraging when you're trying to talk with people about the Bible and what God expects from us. And people are trying to play like they're just so ignorant. You know, mankind can plead the fifth to others today, but on the day of judgment, that doesn't work. Christ already knows all of our deeds. You think about there in book Ecclesiastes when the writer tells us, you know, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every action to judgment, whether good or evil, right? The New Testament mentions also the idea of every secret thing, whether good or evil, which means nothing is hidden from God. And so they confess and acknowledge their sins here in verses 12 and 13. In verses 14 and 15, we find that all that is good stands afar off from them. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and inequity cannot enter. So truth fails and he departs from evil, makes himself a prey. Now, until they come to repentance to God, because confession is not repentance... Yes, I know I've been doing things, I'm doing stuff wrong. Well, you ready to change? Uh, not really. Look at verse 15. And he departs from evil, makes himself a prey. Why does a person depart from evil, make himself a prey? Because all those who've been going along with you, doing the same things, are now going to hate you. They're going to call you a hypocrite, call you a liar, a deceiver. All kinds of things that we can't repeat from the pulpit or should we ever repeat. They make himself, he departs from evil, makes himself a prey. He'll create enemies because the person who says, I want to no longer do this, that person also will lose friends and acquaintances. You think about this for a moment. Is there ever a time when we should decide that some things are much more important that even friends and acquaintances, and sometimes even the approval of our families. How important is heaven? It has to be of utmost importance, isn't it? 
It must be the most important thing. And it must be another part of the thing that should be important for us also is getting everyone else we can to go with us, to go to heaven as well. We find in the latter part of verse 15, Jehovah's response. Then the Lord sought and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw what? That they were in sin and the condition of all the people, right? The Lord was aware of their condition, as we find in verse 15. He knew what they needed. He knows what they need. Looking at verse 16 and following, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. This is a reference being that even those who should have been intercessors between him and man, being priests perhaps here, that none of them were doing good. He says, there was no man, and I wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. This harkens back to me to Isaiah 53, when the writer says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Which is a reference to Christ. See, mankind cannot save mankind. Only God can save mankind. And since mankind has failed, since there was no intercessor... You can find in verse 16, the Lord basically, as we're going to find here, takes things into his own hands. Look at verse 17, verse 16. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him. His own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. He was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully replay, uh, repay. What's going to happen? The Lord Himself is going to what? Bring righteousness to them. Prophets was one way. We also we find He's going to wage battle symbolically against all those who are doing evil. The Lord wasn't literally going to come down and wage a holy war. But the idea was he was going to bring vengeance, as we find here, upon all those who have done wickedness. Look at verse 18. According to their deeds, according, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, a reference to all those who are, who are in rebellion to him. Recompense to his enemies, the coastlands, he will repay. All those who have been in rebellion to God, they're going to pay the price. Look at verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift, will lift up a standard against him. No matter how strong evil may be, God is capable of overcoming whatever evil mankind, no matter how many men may number in wickedness, God will overcome them all. When the enemy comes in like a flood, well, who was that enemy back in verse 18 and verse 17? Those who are doing wickedness. Though there's a lot of them, the Lord says, I'll come overcome all of them with righteousness. The Spirit of the Lord, he says, will lift up a standard against him. Against who? The wicked person. That standard is God's word. He will lift it up. This is how we are to live and that we raised up for mankind to follow. And all those who rebel will pay the price for doing so. Look at verse 20 and 21. The Redeemer will come to Zion. The Redeemer being a reference to Christ, the coming Messiah. 
will come to Zion and to those who turn from, from transgression. And Jacob says the Lord. We know the Bible tells us that the word of the Lord went out uh, conquering and to conquer, as we also find in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. When Pentecost came and the word of God went out, where were the apostles at? Well, they were in Jerusalem. And what happened? The word of the Lord went out from there. We know the gospel message would go out not only through Christ, but also through those who were followers of him, the apostles and all those who had come after them, him as well. Verse 21, here's a reference. Uh, is referencing the words given to Christ, the spirit of God being given to him. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forever. The spirit of God being put upon Christ. But also think about the New Testament time period and the time period of Christ. The apostles would be doing what? Preaching and teaching constantly. It would always be going out. Those who came after them, preaching and teaching, it would always be going out. The word of truth was always going out. From this time, he says, and forevermore. Now we have seen in chapter 59, sin and the price of it. And we're going to find in chapter 62, as we look here in just a moment, we're going to find what it means to find forgiveness and what it means to draw near to God. Let's look at Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 5. We find a new name is given, but it's only given to those who are followers of God. In Isaiah 59, beginning in, or excuse me, in Isaiah 62, beginning in verse 1 and 2, says here, For Zion's sake I will not withhold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. God's going to bless the faithful there in verse 1. For Zion's sake I will not withhold my peace, meaning God will not hold back his goodness, his blessings. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The idea there being God, he gives them to bless those who are loyal to him, those who are faithful. For Jerusalem's sake, the reference to those who are loyal to him until her, until her righteousness, that is her goodness, doing what is right and pleasing in the sight of God, goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Verse 2, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which is the mouth of Now it's interesting in verse 2, it doesn't actually say what that new name is. We know, though, later in the, in the New Testament that those who are following Christ are later referred to as Christians. It could be a reference to that. It could be a reference to a name that we simply do not know. But we do know that those who followed Christ were given various different names. Sometimes they're called Christians. As we know that they were first called Christians at Antioch. Sometimes they're simply called those who were called of the way, which is a reference to followers of Christ. But they were giving a new name, referencing they become a new person. They're not going to be like those who live like how they were before. A new name represents a big change taking place. Looking at verse 3 and 4, we find the redeemed will be a crown of glory. They will no longer be called forsaken, but God will delight in them. You should, be, should also be a crown of glory in the hands of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be deemed desolate. 
But you shall be called Hespa in your land, Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. It's actually what those names mean word for word, just about Hespa meaning delight, and Beulah, which I'm mispronouncing big time, is meaning married. The idea they're, they're going to be married to God. The faith will be, will be joined to Him, and as a result, their blessings will flow. The Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. That is, they'll be joined with God. We find in verse 5, they will be married to God there in verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That faithful loyalty to God. Now, as we keep on looking at Isaiah 62, we find as we draw near to God, what we do, we have a new name. We become new people. We, we have this fellowship, this relationship with God. And then in verses 6 through 9, we find the watchmen are, are mentioned. We have there on the screen the watchman. It's actually the watchmen, plural. It's a reference to those we're going to find in verses 6 and 7 who are those who are going to be preaching and teaching the gospel. He says in verse 6, I have set, set watchmen on your walls. O Jerusalem, they shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent and give him no rest until he establishes and until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The watchmen there in verse 6 and 7, many say are a reference to the apostles, evangelists, and teachers whose work is perfecting the saints as we find in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12. Their word is, is going to always be going out. Yet again, as we mentioned before, the watchmen on your walls, they shall never hold their peace day or night. The apostles preached freely. Those who came after them preached freely. And we today should also strive to do the same thing. Make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no longer give, give your grain as food for your enemies. And the sons of, your, of a foreigner shall not drink your new wine, for which you have labored. But those who have gathered it shall eat, shall eat it. And praise the Lord those who brought it. Together shall drink it in my, in my holy courts. So we find because God is no longer angry with them, that he will not give their goods to their enemies. To enjoy the fruits of their labors. We find the raised hand here that's sworn by his right hand, verse 8 signifies that an oath is being given. So he's making an oath that they're going to be able to enjoy the fruit of their labor. There's no longer going to be given over to their enemies. Again, another blessing from God. In verses 10 through 12 is where we want to put our focus for the latter part of this lesson. Let's look at this, this path to salvation. As we look at verses 10 through 12 here. Looking at verse 10, go through, go through the gates... Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. So we find here the way of the people, the path is to be cleared, and a banner is to be raised up for them. A banner is what? It's a reference for something which they are to focus upon and to follow. That banner is a reference to God's word. They're to focus on God's word and follow it. His commands and His commands only. That is what leaves the people out. Looking at verse uh, 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, Indeed the Lord has proclaimed to the, end the, to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, His, his reward is with Him and His work before Him. 
The prophet is looking to the time when the glory of Zion will be complete through the Savior. Then God's reward to the people will be, will be a dwelling place in his presence, the wages for their, for their waiting and their labor. This also goes back to Isaiah 40 and verse 10. And so their, their reward for their work, their reward for their faithfulness, is they get to have heaven as their home. And we find here that who is going to bring that reward with him? His reward is with him. It seems to be a, a pointing towards Christ the future, bringing that reward of, of, of salvation. No doubt he was going to bring the gospel message with him, the will of God and, and being uh, his, his desire. And no doubt those who would be loyal to him would, would have their reward as well. And these individuals here will also have that reward in like manner. Because of their faithfulness, they too will have heaven as their home. Verse 12, we find here they will be recognized as a people separate from all others because their redemption is of Jehovah, not of man. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. You look about Isaiah 62, it's really a lot about the result of their forgiveness. Isaiah 59, you have their, their sins being called out. You have them confessing them. And then we find in Isaiah 62, what's happening? Their blessings are being restored, signifying they have been forgiven. And they're going to be called by an entirely different name. And in verse 12, he mentions several ideas concerning this name. He says, they shall, they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. You think about how many times we find in the Bible names and phrases also being used to apply to followers of God. And here we find several examples more in how the last one says a city not forsaken. You go back to Isaiah 59 when they were in sin. Were they forsaken by God because of their sin? Their sin had clearly separated them from God, Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 3, right? And so they had no ability to have the blessings from God. But as they came to their senses and confessed those things, acknowledged those things, we move forward to, six, to chapter 62, what happens? God has restored their blessings to them. They're no longer called the forsaken city. Instead, they're called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and should be called sought out. Now, we want to think about some lessons for us today. As we began this lesson this morning, we pointed out very clearly that sin has and always will separate man from God. There's no way around it. That's what separates man from God. But we can solve that problem. The Father says what separates us from Him, and man has to act to remove this wall, this wall of separation. And we do that by confessing our sins to God. If we are a Christian, we confess those sins to God. And then we are forgiven of those things. If we're not a Christian, we obey the gospel. Which includes confessing that Christ is the Son of God, being immersed in baptism, uh, uh, repenting of our sins, being immersed in baptism, and remaining faithful to God. Those things result in us being called those who are redeemed, as we saw back in verse 12. But man will never be with God if sin is what he loves. 
And Isaiah 59 paints a pretty bleak picture that they were heavily involved in sin, at least for a time. But when they came out, when they confessed those things to God, and we find we get to chapter 62, they have been clearly forgiven by God because their blessings have been restored. But friends, we cannot be forgiven until we confess our sins to God. Until we acknowledge those things are part of what we're doing, that we're being honest with ourselves, honest with God. When we confess those things to God, we ask Him to forgive us those things. We can't have the blessings of God restored to us. Repentance, mercy, and the love of God will always solve man's problems. Repentance, mercy from God, the love of God will always solve man's problems. How does that happen? Repentance, mercy, and God's love is what makes man clean and whole. Because when we repent of our sins, if we're not a Christian, when we confess those things to God, confess that Christ is the Son of God, and because the moment we are immersed in baptism, the Bible tells us our sins are washed away. Because of God's love and mercy, that is made available to us. Acts 2, verse 38. And because of God's love for us, we also find at that same time when we are baptized for remission of our sins, that we're also placed into the body of Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. That's mean we're baptized in, into Christ to put on Christ. A reference to putting on Christ is a reference to being added to the body of Christ, which is the church. But it's only by God's mercy and His love that makes this possible. Repentance, mercy, and God's love is what makes man clean and whole. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance and obedience is what will bring these things to man. When we say godly sorrow, we mean more than just saying, yes, I shouldn't be doing this. We, sh we say to God, these things were against you, and I had no business in doing these things. I want to turn from these things. Godly sorrow because they go against everything that God is. Not just a, not a sorry I got caught, but a I want to turn from these things. Because they go against God. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance and obedience is what will bring these things to God. It will bring God's mercy and love to man. Are you allowing sin to separate you from God? Because that is what's going to separate us from God. You know, it's not our differences of opinion. It's not what our likes and dislikes are. It's not our choice in clothing. It's sin. Sin has always been the determining factor. Again, you can look at numerous examples in the Bible from Old Testament, from Genesis, all the way through Revelation up until today. The problem has always been the same. Sin separates man from God. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we allowing this to happen to ourselves? Are you allowing sin to separate you from God? Because the scariest thing that can happen is find ourselves in the day of judgment, sin before Christ, and we have not solved that problem. Because then it'll be too late. We don't want to wait too long. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect time to obey God because the perfect time is now. 
When we understand what God requires of us, understand what it means to be a faithful Christian and things that are going to have to change in our lives, then it's time for us to obey. You know, I think of how many times I've heard people say, you know, I've heard athletes say, well, when the weather warms up, I'll, we'll go out and do this. When the weather gets cold enough, we'll go out and do this, where the case may be. For someone who wants to come to God, there should never be a time where we're saying, well, I feel a little bit better. I don't have the sniffles, things like that. That's not a valid reason. When we understand what God wants from us, we understand what, that some difficult choices are going to have to be made in order to be a true follower of God, then it's time for us to, to obey. It's time for us to respond. When it comes to sin, do you want to remove it? Are you ready to truly draw near to God through obedience? Because again, you cannot draw near to God while sin is in the way. You ever try to get close to someone while there's a wall or a window between you and them? Think about for a moment, thanks to COVID and all the things it brought us, how many of us have had to have conversations through a window or through a door, over the telephone? It's doable. That's not closeness, is it? Seeing is oftentimes that same way. We think, well, I'll, move, I'll remove a lot of things out of the way. I'll remove this, I'll remove that, but I'm not going to take all of it out of the way because I enjoy it too much, or the case may be. You can't draw near to God because when it's in your life, there's not even a window to God. There's no all in part way there. I'm just got to work on this. No, there's until sin is removed, you can't even see him. And he'll never answer our prayers if we are allowing sin to keep us separated from him. This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. We're glad to do so. That's going to be saying, sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>